When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Kaliba.com. Doug Lambert, Scott Pasco, Ellis Williams. Film, numbers, fun, winning. 10 and 4 Browns taking on the New York Jets on Sunday. We're dropping one this week because, don't know if you guys heard, holiday this week. So this is your one. We usually do Tuesday, Friday. We're just doing Wednesday. We're getting it to you. Absorb it. Revel in it. And we're breaking down like little, like short yardage. It's the short yardage. Got to watch the tape. So Ellis in the second half is going to deal with kind of a red zone, touchdown, short thing. Right? Is that the thing, Ellis? They usually send they usually send in the same email. It's very busy. It's very busy. This is the thing, Scott, you've been around sort of the Browns the longest of the three of us. The difference between covering a winning football team that is crescendoing at the holiday season as a poor as opposed to a football team that is just running out the clock at the end of a holiday season. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It does make for a busier Christmas, does it not, Scott? Oh, it does. But I think the things we're anticipating writing about, I think, are better than the things we used to anticipate writing about. You know, we'd, we'd be looking at coaching candidates at this point in the season. I'd be writing snarky, uh, tongue-in-cheek posts about how the Browns could still make the playoffs, even though they haven't won a game yet, and you know, stuff like that. It's totally different this year. If, yeah. this, if this was a year ago, would I be having a deep dive on the Vikings' offense and why Kevin Stefanski is a good head coaching candidate for the Browns? <laughs> <laughs> It is. It's like, hey, uh, what do you guys think is a good thing to drop on Christmas? Is it who the Browns will pick at number two or is it who their head coach will be among the assistants in the playoffs? Instead, there, you know what we haven't? Nobody has even said the D word for the Browns in three months. No draft talk. Nobody is talking about, oh, who do you think they'll take with the 29th pick? That is not what we're talking about. It's a wonderful, glorious thing. Instead, we're doing short yardage here on Gotta Watch the Tape. So, I mean, like, because it might matter, because they're so good, it might come down to like one play might be the difference between making the AFC championship game or not. Playoff football. That's it. Everything is under the auspices of playoff football here on Gotta Watch the Tape. So, make sure you're listening. One this week during the holiday week. But, I mean, it's just been great. It's been a great time. This was Scott's baby, his brainchild. Of like, let's try to do a podcast with this theme, with this kind of discussion. So Scott pushed it. We're so excited we were able to make it happen. It's been a great year to do it. Thanks to everybody who's been along for the ride, and happy holidays to everyone. So Ellis will go in the second half. We'll start off with Scott dealing with sort of the fourth down aspect. A lot of it short yardage, not all of it. 
but fourth downs in the league. It's an interesting time. Everything's a little more interesting in the NFL right now. Fourth downs, two point conversions, all this. Kind of, there's not just the rote. Uh, you punt, uh, you go for the extra point, which, you know, puts some decision making in the hands of coaches and makes execution even more important. So that's what we're doing. Thanks to you guys for being here. Scott Patsko, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. So the Browns are 10-4. and four. They can clinch a playoff spot Sunday, and they still have a path to the division title. So let's talk about something they're bad at, right? The media. We're, we're like the worst. We're always so negative. <laughs> Old habits die hard. Old habits die hard. That's right. Actually, this is something that I probably would have talked about last week if we had done the two podcasts, but we, <clears throat> we had one on the short week. Um, because, again, we like to get into some analytics things on this podcast, and we think of the Browns as an analytically-minded team. And going forward on fourth down is like analytics 101. And we'll get into the thinking behind that. But first, uh, like Doug said, let's talk about league-wide. So I think we should probably take a bigger picture here on what's happening with fourth downs uh, across the league this season. There's a lot of offensive bar raising uh, in the NFL this season. Things like points per game, touchdowns per game, drives per game, percentage of scoring drives, even plays per drive are all at historic levels. 2020 is like setting records in all these categories. Uh, and we've mentioned – some of this when we talked earlier this season about all the struggles the Browns were having a pass defense, it's just basically really tough to be a defense in 2020. So the Browns, as we know, are part of this offensive surge. Uh, they're on pace to have the franchise's highest points per game average for a 16 team for 16 game season. Um, so they're, they're kind of contributing to all that. There's no one reason for all this scoring this season. Uh, as we mentioned, things like, you know, lack of offensive holding penalties have been a part of this pace of play play action pre-snap motion which uh ellis has gotten into recently those are all contributing to it but fourth downs are are a big part of this as well nfl teams are converting 54.4 percent of the time on fourth down this season that's up from 47.9 percent last season Uh, attempts per game are up 568 through 14 weeks um and that's on pace to to be the most ever Uh, teams have already uh, had a total of 309 successful fourth down conversions. That's a record for a single season. Uh, there are five teams converting better than 70% on fourth downs. Uh, the Dolphins are actually at 83%, but they've only gone forward six times. But more telling, the more telling number here is the number of teams that have had at least 20 fourth down conversions this season. In 2013, that was just five teams with more than 20. The Browns actually led the league that season with 31 under Rob Chudzinski. Maybe he was ahead of his time. Knew that, <laughs> that guy was a genius. Knew it at the time. Misunderstood right. genius. He was. Uh, but the number of teams with at least 20 tries in the years after that were two, four, three in 2016. In 2017, it jumped to seven, then nine, then 12 last season. This season, there are already 10 teams over 20 attempts. Two are over 30. And there are nine other teams between 17 and 19 going into these final two games. So you're going to uh, have a ton of teams over 20 by the end of this regular season. The Browns are all part of that. They've had 21 attempts, which ranks eighth in the league. But here's why we're talking about this today. Despite being eighth in attempts, they're 27th in conversion rate. They've only converted eight of 21 fourth downs this season. That's 38.1%. You know, we've talked about Kevin Stefanski being an impressive play caller, and he's done well in high leverage situations like third downs where the Browns are seventh and red zone. Ellis is going to get into where they're fourth. But Stefanski and his offense haven't been able to solve fourth downs this season. They were 0 for 1 against the Giants on Sunday. It was that batted pass. Uh, Hooper was open, but uh, 
the Mayfield's pass got batted down. This isn't something that followed Stefanski from Minnesota. The Vikings converted 53% of their fourth downs, which is ranked 10th last year, but they had just 15 attempts all season. And Stefanski wasn't the one deciding whether or not to go for it. That was Mike Zimmer. Uh, but Stefanski was calling those plays just like this year. Um, so that's where the Browns are with this eight of 21, only the 49ers, Jets, Jaguars, and Broncos are worse of the seven teams below 50%. The Browns are the only one with more than five wins this season. Um, so that's kind of what led me to diving into this, trying to figure out why, uh, before I get into what I found though, I thought I'd open it up, find out what you guys make of it. You know, if it surprises you that they've gone for it so many times or that they had, you know, so little success so far this season. So the one thing I do, I, I do think the interesting overall discussion of what the what it means for the league and where the league is is very interesting and a good way to jump off of here. The point that you're making, Scott, that the Browns, the only teams that have a worse conversion rate than the Browns are like losing teams, right? I think there's two reasons teams go for it on fourth down, right? One is because you're um, strategically advanced right that you're you're willing to take a little risk but it's strategic risk which is something we've versus recklessness like which we've talked about a lot this year that like it's smart and the other is, is desperation like well we suck may as well go for it on fourth doom so that's not what the browns are this is clearly strategic and yet they're not very good at it which is why it is such i think it is the most disconnected thing there's the most dissonance in this stat i think than of anything else that is happening with the, with the Browns. So I'm fascinated sort of the why behind teams go for it. But also I think the one thing, Ellis, that it feels like the Browns want to do, and I think Paul DePodesta would tell you this, that they still think this, when it comes to analytics and decision-making, that kind of thing, they understand that this is where the league is. But they also still think they can be at the front of the pack of this more common type of thinking, Right. But I do think one of the reasons that we're seeing more teams go for it is because more teams are going for it. And you don't feel like an outlier as a coach anymore. And too many coaches are out there to cover their butts and think, well, if something goes wrong, at least I won't be blamed if we don't do something that's an outlier. But now you have more cover because it's more common to do it. So I do think the league as a whole is moving that way. But I would imagine that in these types of decisions, the Browns still would believe we still can be smarter, even though the league as a whole is adapting. Ellis, where are you just on the whole fourth down trend? Yeah, well, first, Doug, you're, you're exactly right about coaches, you know, even just a decade ago, covering their butt and being more conservative and not letting then the media uh, scapegoat them for, you know, just being Captain Hindsight and being like, oh, well, you didn't get the fourth down, so that was the wrong call. Now <clears throat> the data, the power of the internet, we're all connected. The information is there for all of us. Um, you know, expected points added. That stat has just dr driven through football, and it is now becoming really commonplace that in understanding that you only get so many possessions in a football game, probably about 12, unless you're playing Sunday night against the New York Giants. And it's a few shorter, but you know, you only get so many possessions. You need to maximize those when you can. And in short yard situations, especially across midfield or in close, which we'll talk about red zone, uh, either crossing midfield and going for it or pinning your uh, opponent then on the two, three yard line and the turnover on downs still puts your defense in an advantageous situation. So it's now becoming common knowledge and just the fact of an offensive explosion that continues to run through the league. You need touchdowns to keep up. Field goals are a quick way to fall behind early. 
Yeah, right. The, the just the the emphasis on offense is 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 right. That just that's certainly part of this too, Scott. Before we get, I, I do I think the example, and I wrote about what Ellis just mentioned. I wrote about it for Wednesday morning. This that they only had seven possessions each in the Giants game, and that was their second fewest possessions in the game this year. They had six against the Raiders, and, and it was a low possession game, long drives, and Kevin Stefanski was talking about if you're going to have long drives and play a game like that, it's all about conversions. Whether it's on third or fourth down, if you don't convert, then you're punting, and then you're, you're dead. But I think the example, he was talking about the first time they went for it. On the first drive from, their, from the Giants' 43-yard line, fourth and two, they go for it. I thought, Scott, that was a great example. We have This is not, you know, from the 43, as Ellis said, I think there's two times of going forward on fourth down. One's red zone where you're passing up a field goal to go for the touchdown. And the other is that area, like that 25-yard area in the middle of the field where it's like, well, if the punt goes in the end zone, we're only giving up 20 or 25 yards of field position. We may as well go for it. That's where the decisions come in. The second one is where the Browns went for it. And, Scott, it just felt like it was an automatic go. Like there wasn't even a lot. It was just like, oh, it's fourth and two from the Giants 43. We're going for it. And then they didn't make it. But I thought that was a great example of where the Browns are with their fourth down decision making right now. Yeah, I think, you know, it used to be you'd see timeouts before situations like that and they'd talk it over. And I think and that's happened more than once uh, this season with the Browns. Actually, it's happened quite often where it's they understand where they are on the field and where it makes sense to go for it. And maybe it's not so much about all right, we're thinking about yardage here in terms of uh, punting and, and pinning someone back. It's more about, all right, this is one or two yards and we should get that. That's why I think the decision comes into maybe more so than, uh, you know, I think thinking in terms of, all right, we can pin them back is maybe like that old school way. And as I'll get into in a little bit here, that doesn't always work out. This, the league is different now, you know, um, these passing offenses move quickly and, trying to play the field position game can backfire. So yeah. In a world where it's like, Hey, we pinned him on the three and it's like, yeah. Then they threw like a 12 yard slant on first down and it was over. Your advantage was gone. What was the bit? Why did you right. do it? Why didn't you right. try to go? So, right. the, so one part of this, Scott, so you're setting up the decision to go for it. Then mm-hmm. the second part is what do you call when you go for it? So where are the Browns with that? Right. So I went back and I watched all the Browns fourth down conversion uh, attempts this season. And uh, I started with that fake punt in week one, against the Ravens, because I guess we'll kind of include that. Uh, the, the play was such an anomaly in this, uh, in this exercise. But what I'll say, I'll say two things about that play. Number one, if you're going to go for it on fourth and four at your own 31, which, by the way, you should never do, uh, and I'll explain why in a little bit here, at least keep your offense on the field. And number two, it's Andros Sandejo's fault, okay? He missed his block, all right? It was that simple. That's a first down if he holds his block and he makes it, but he didn't. And that just kind of kicked off his, you know, rough season right there. Um, but as for the rest of the fourth downs, here's some of the things that, that I found. On fourth and one, the Browns have gone for it nine out of 11 times. And they're four of nine on those attempts, including two of seven running the ball, which I know, Doug, you had written about earlier this season there, their issues running the ball in short yardage. Uh, one of those was Baker Mayfield's fumble against the Titans, which is a play uh, in which he was actually credited with two yards. So he did pick up the first down, but, you know, he fumbled. On fourth and two, they've gone for it three out of nine times, and they've converted only once, and that was on a pass to Jarvis Landry in the first Bengals game. Uh, they were stopped the only time they ran it on fourth and two. On fourth and three, they've only faced fourth and three once this season, and they kicked a field goal. 
But fourth and four, uh, they've faced 15 times this season. They've gone for it six times. They've converted twice, both times on passes. That included the touchdown pass to Richard Higgins uh, two weeks ago against the Ravens. Uh, and then the Browns lined up to go for it two other times on fourth and four. Uh, there was a defensive offside to give him a first down uh, against uh, Washington. And then there was a false start, uh, which I'm, I can't remember exactly, but I'm going to guess it was by Jedrick Wills. And uh, that led to them punting. So to recap, on fourth and two or less, the Browns are five of 12, which is 41.6%. That includes two of eight running the ball. So remember, the Browns are third in the NFL in total rushing yards. Uh, they average 4.9 yards per carry, which is tied for fourth best. And the Browns' offensive line has pro football focus is top-graded. They're the top-graded run-blocking offensive line in the league. And yet they have these struggles on, on short yardage. And we've kind of mentioned this before. They're 31st in power success this season, which rates how well you do on third and fourth down with two or less to go, and also all goal-to-goal situations, two or, two or less yards. So they're 31st in that. They're 25th in stuffed rate, which sounds exactly – like what it is. It's how often you get stopped for no gain or, or a loss. Um, and this is not a new phenomenon. The Browns were 29th or 32nd in power success rate the last two seasons. Um, so these are issues that the Browns clearly need to work out sometime in the offseason to figure out how to pick up those short yardage uh, plays with their running backs. The Browns' best play on fourth and one is having Baker sneak. Yes. He's done it three times and he's gotten the necessary yards on all three. And that includes the fumble. Uh, Hunt, uh, Cream Hunt has lost a yard on fourth and one and been stopped for no gain twice to Ernest Johnson is the only other running back to get a carry in that situation. And he lost two yards. Uh, I think it was against the Steelers. I mean, every study of quarterback sneaks has shown that they're significantly more successful than other short yardage plays. Like just Google QB sneak, you know, success rate, and you'll get a ton of them. You know, PFF research says they're 20% more successful than other third or fourth and one plays. Wall Street Journal did a, a report a couple of years ago that showed that every quarterback with at least 10 career sneak attempts had a success rate of 75% or better. So that's running. When the Browns pass the ball on fourth down, they're six of 12 with one sack. One of those was really a throwaway in disguise uh, against the Eagles. I, I didn't really pay attention to this play when it happened, but it was funny to rewatch it. Uh, there were four seconds left. The Browns were at their own 35. They were leading seven, nothing. And, Normally you punt there. It was fourth and five, but they, they had 13 personnel. So you had three tight ends on the field. You had, you had uh, Kareem Hunt in the backfield and Hodge was out wide. There was no play action. Baker dropped back. Everybody moved to the right and everybody stayed in the block. Hodge basically jogs at like half speed down the field. Never even looks back. Baker chucks it, you know, 30 yards downfield out of bounds. It was basically a throwaway, a play to, to waste four seconds which when you think about it is probably safer than risking a handoff or a fumble or punting and a return. But, you know, so we'll count that as a throwaway. Then you add in the batted pass against the giants and you take away the defensive pass interference against the Ravens, which wasn't really an official pass anyways. And the Browns adjusted completion percentage on fourth down this season is 66% when they pass six of nine. So my advice should Kevin Stefanski choose to accept it is to throw the ball on fourth down unless you want to sneak Baker on fourth and short until you can figure out how to get yards with your running backs. So there, we solve problems on this podcast. That's all you got to do. I, I think that is where they are. Sneak or throw. 
I mean, I really do. It feels like Hunt, we know Chubb's not the guy there. Chubb does a million things great. He's not your fourth and one guy. Kareem Hunt should be the guy, I think. And I'm a little confused by he's so physical. And often he has that second effort that when he's hit initially, he's not stopped, right? And one of these fourth down failures is the touchdown against the Eagles that was ruled a touchdown and then on review was reversed. So that was one of them. That's how close that was. When I wrote this thing a couple weeks ago, there was some stuff of like, well, if the officials marked the ball correctly, their, their stats would be better on fourth down. And we know how fans are with that. The one thing that I am in between on in trying to decide what to do on fourth down, and this is what Kevin Stefanski said about the pass to Hooper against the Giants. He said, we like the play call, right? Because Hooper was open. But when you go for it on fourth down, it's not called get credit for calling a good play. It's converting it. And the idea of like, well, the play was the right call and it didn't work. Well, yeah, that's how the league works. Stuff gets batted down. A guy drops it when it hits him in the hands. You know, the wind takes it. Some defensive player out of nowhere makes a great play. That's in the implied risk. I mean, that's not, you don't get to say, well, if it wasn't for that, it would have made it. It's like, that's the whole point. You didn't make it. So when coaches say that, I know what they're saying. Because if you drop back, the thing that I hate the most on fourth down when you throw is you drop back, the quarterback looks, and it's not there. And now it's a scramble drill on fourth down. And it's like, well, that was a failure. Congratulations on not being able to draw it up to get a guy open for two yards. So I understand what Kevin Stefanski saying, but it's also the deal. But at this point, Ellis, if it's, if the Browns face, I mean, if it's a fourth and one, they should probably sneak it. If it's anything more than that, Ellis, what should they do? If they have it against the Steelers in two weeks and it's a game for the division and it's at the, their, the Steelers 41 yard line in the third quarter in a tight game and it's fourth and two, what should the Browns call? This is tough. And it's really uh, the, crux of the conversation especially when we're talking fourth and two and further as Scott's data pointed out I'll say this when it comes to what they're going to call so much of this is what personnel and what happens pre-snap that Baker's seeing so I'll answer the question with this is they're going to lean on a lot of what has gotten them success so far this season pre-snap motion in a diverse <clears throat> personnel set, two tight ends, perhaps two running backs, pre-snap motion. And essentially it's like you said, it, they got to throw the ball. I come to the play against Jacksonville when Baker Mayfield threw it behind Kareem Hunt in the flat there that would essentially ended the game. That's the type of play call the Browns should lean on in these short yard situations. And I do think, though it was just a game we're probably all going to forget about in Jacksonville that they ended up winning once the season's over. But if you really look back at it so far up to this point, that was the most raw we've seen Kevin Stefanski all year after that Jacksonville game, when they were incapable of converting first that third down and short, and then the fourth and short. And he came on the zoom press conference and said, we got to get those. And you could hear it in his voice. It was like he just came out of the locker room, even though you know they have time to decompress. It was like he still had that energy to him. And outside of that moment, I mean, he's almost getting a, a – and he definitely has a rep among Cleveland media that Kevin Spansky puts people to sleep with his press conferences, and that's probably going to trickle into the national uh, volume soon here. But that moment after the Jacksonville game, to me, said exactly what the frustration of this team in short yardage situations is is they're struggling 
Scott's data proves they still are. And if you can't get it throwing short and you can't get it running short, what are your options? You, you don't have any. But to wrap it up and just answer your question, Scott, it's that play to Kareem Hunt in the flat, get motion, get a, your one of your faster players on the perimeter with an advantage against a linebacker and make the easy throw. They just weren't capable of doing that in Jacksonville for whatever reason. They had one early in the season too. I think it might've been like a fourth and four or something where they just ran a little motion with Odell and just hit like a little easy throw into flat to Odell. And it's like, it's a one second throw right off the line. You don't even have time to get to him. And then it's just like, all right, is Odell Beckham going to catch a ball that, and is, is Baker going to hit him in the hands? And if you do both those things, you're going to convert it. So there are some options there with Jarvis Landry or, you know, I wouldn't throw it to David Njoku on fourth down, no offense, David Njoku. But, like, you know, they have some guys that they could throw it to. So I guess part of this, Scott, with all this stuff is process matters. If you're making the right decisions, sometimes the immediate results in a small sample size don't play out. But I think long-term, this is what analytics would tell you, is like process matters, decision-making matters, stick to your principles. And as the sample size increases, if you stick with what you know the data shows is right, you'll come out ahead. This is a small sample size, Scott. So I guess in the end, they are going for it a fair amount in a league that is going for it more, but they're not having success. So does that mean they should stop going for it? Or should they keep doing the same decision-making and assume that the, the worm will turn a little bit and it'll just even out. In, in terms of the actual decisions that Kevin Stefanski is making, what, what, where should he go from here? Yeah, they should keep going for it. And I think they clearly understand that when you look at how often they go for it. You know, analytics folks have been urging coaches to go for it on fourth down for years and years now, uh, pointing out, like, uh, you know, Ellis mentioned about expected points, you know, touchdowns, they're twice as much as field goals. Uh, so, you know, you convert on fourth down, you, you've added uh, more, more potential points uh, to, your, uh, to your probabilities there. And your chances of converting on fourth and short is often equal to or better than your chances of successful field goal, depending on where you are on the field. Yep. You know, and the NFL's pass happy offenses, playing the field position game doesn't make as much sense as anymore, as we mentioned with that Texas game. There's a high school coach in Arkansas. I don't know if you guys have heard of, uh, heard of him before. He stopped punting. He always onside kicks. Always goes for two after touchdowns. He's won multiple state titles. Now, I know that's high school, but, you know, things like that trickle up. I and mean, we've seen that with other things uh, in, in football. Hasn't gotten to that point in the NFL yet, but clearly going forward on fourth down is, is trending that way. Um, the worst offensive team in the NFL this year, the Jets still average 4.6 yards per play. More than half the plays in the NFL gain at least four yards. That means the numbers favor the offense. Um, Brian Burke, who's ESPN sports analytics reporter, he used to write for the New York Times. He created uh, fourth down models when he was there that kind of morphed into what's known as the New York Times fourth down bot. Uh, it's basically a rule of thumb collection for when you should go for it and when you should not go for it. And they used to be I have a Twitter account that actually judged these plays in real time. Uh, it's been dormant for a few years now, but it was fun to kind of see like right away what the bot said about a team's fourth down decision. But the rule of thumb on fourth downs, which is, again, based on percentages, probabilities uh, from Burke's models, include the following. On fourth and one, you go for it any place on the field starting at your own nine-yard line, which I think would make a lot of coaches' heads explode. Uh, on fourth and two, you go for it everywhere beyond your 28-yard line, which maybe more, more people can kind of get, can wrap their head around. On fourth and three, you go for it almost everywhere beyond your third, beyond your forty. There is a, a section close to the goal line where you should probably think about kicking the field goal. 
Um, but the go for it areas on the field naturally are going to shrink, you know, the longer the distance gets on fourth down. And then these decisions get a little more complicated when you get into like the final 10 minutes of a game, because you're thinking about score, you're thinking about possessions, you're thinking about time left, stuff like that. But uh, just on the basic rule of thumbs, I decided to take Stefanski's decisions and kind of match it up against the fourth down bot and see how often they agree. Um, and overall, by my count, the Browns faced 84 fourth downs this season. Stefanski has made the recommended decision on 71 of them. And I think most coaches are going to have a high percentage because, you know, you also have in here a lot of, you know, fourth and long where it's easy to decide to punt or go for the field goal. Those are easy. But Stefanski has overruled the bot on thir 13 of those decisions, whether it's been to go for it or not go for it. On fourth and one, he's overruled it twice, uh, but we'll – give him one because it was a punt on fourth and one from his own 48 with nine seconds left in the half against the Steelers, um, which, I mean, you could run it, but there's no guarantee you're going to run off nine seconds and the Steelers call timeout and they get to heave it into the end zone, something like that. So that, that made sense. The other was when he punted from his own 34 with seven and a half minutes left in the second quarter, leading the Bengals 14 to 10. That was a position where the bot recommends you go for it. Um, Browns had a lead again, it's only fourth and one. It would have been a good leverage situation. You got a lot of time before the end of the half to put, to keep putting together a drive. Uh, one of the fourth and ones that the bot could have gone either way on was with, against the Jaguars. The Browns led 27, 19, five and a half minutes to play. Instead of kicking a 40 yard field goal and going up by two scores, the Browns went for it at the 22 and hunt was stopped for no gain. And as we learned, maybe a quarterback sneak or a pass would have been better for this team. Uh, then on fourth and two, Stefanski's overruled about four times. Three of those, he's decided to kick a field goal. And once he punted, one field goal attempt was in week one. Browns were trailing to Ravens 17 to six. There were 46 seconds left in the first half. So instead of going for it, uh, and that was from the 23-yard line, the Browns attempted a field goal and missed. Browns still had two timeouts at that point. The Ravens took over, went 69 yards and 35 seconds and scored a touchdown right before the half. So it's easy to look back at that and think that going with the bot's recommendation would have made a lot of sense. Even if you don't end up scoring on that drive, you probably keep the Ravens from scoring and taking a 24-6 lead into halftime. Last one I'll mention here is fourth and four. This is the most common fourth down the Browns have faced this year. Stefanski's overruled the bot six times. And as I mentioned before, they've had fourth and four 15 times this season. But we can cross one off the list, uh, which was against the Ravens, because they trailed 31-6. Of course, you're going to go for it, no matter where you are. Another was uh, uh, passing up a field goal to get Washington to jump off sides with a hard count, and that worked. And then another was that, was that Higgins touchdown against the Ravens, which, again, you're down by 14 late in the fourth quarter. Of course, you're going to go for it. Uh, but twice, Stefanski's punted on fourth and four. When the bot recommended it, he'd go for it. Once was the, against the Colts uh, from the 46-yard line, it was the Colts 46 yard line. It was the first play of the fourth quarter. So it's still very early. Uh, the punt pinned the Colts near their own goal line. And that led to the safety, which was a big moment. So in that case, it worked out. Uh, the other punt was against the Texans in week 10. The Browns were at the 50. There were eight minutes left in the fourth. They were up 10, nothing. The Texans took over at their own 10, drove 90 yards in less than three minutes to score a touchdown. There were still five minutes left at that point. So that's a good example of how field position can kind of backfire. Um, the longest fourth down the Browns have gone for, fourth and seven. They were at their own 37-yard line. They were trailing uh, Washington 
I'm sorry, they were at Washington's uh, 37-yard line, and they were trailing 7-0, threw it to Hooper for a first down, uh, and then they ended up scoring on that drive. I think the longest fourth down the Browns went for last year was that failed fourth and nine draw play by Freddie Kitchens that became a national sensation. Um, but fourth and seven is uh, where, where Stefanski's kind of drawn the line uh, as far as converting goes this year. Overall, though, um, you know, despite the Browns' poor fourth down conversion rate, I think Stefanski's on the right track with the fact that he's being aggressive and they are going for it more than your average NFL team. They're kind of contributing to that push of going for it more on fourth downs. It doesn't always work out, but at least they're trending in the right direction. And it seems like they have an understanding of, of why that's important. And like you said before, Doug, it isn't like, let's stop the clock and really think about this. It's all right. We know where we are. We know what the, 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 the distance is. We know what the probabilities are. We're going to go for it in this situation. And um, as long as they pass, or sneak, uh, it, it tends to work out. I think almost that's the proof of if you call a timeout before a fourth down, you're not analytically minded. You're trying to figure out what your gut's telling you to do that day. If you're just going by data and letting not data be the final decision every single time, but let data be your guide, you know beforehand whether, all right, this is a spot where we go, this is a spot where we don't go. So in the end, Scott, Kevin Stefanski, smarter than a robot or not? Nobody's smarter than a robot. <laughs> you just that's say that because you, you know the robots are listening, and that's why don't be afraid of the robots. Right. You can cram it, robot. I do think Kevin Scafan, because that's one of those things again. I mean, a bot, okay, the bot would tell you, but if if you came on here and said Kevin Stefanski 100% agreed with the bots, I would be like, delete that man's Twitter account. You can't 100% right. agree with the bots. But if you came on here and said, hey, the bot said go for it, and like you never went for it because you're so afraid, that's not it either. I don't know. From what you explained and the percent of how much he matched up, that probably sounded to me like maybe about where you want to be. Oh, yeah. I would say he's smarter than the average coach <laughs> in, that, in those terms. Although, you know, remember how he started out with, you know, going for the fake punt against the Ravens. It was kind of a dubious way to start, but uh, from what we've seen so far over the first 14 games, yeah, I would say that he has a clear understanding Now he doesn't always agree with it. And as we've seen some of his decisions, even when he doesn't agree with what it's recommended, it still works out like the safety, you know, against the Colts. Um, but I think if you're a Browns fan and you're wondering about Stefanski's aggressiveness and his, uh, and the information he's using to make these decisions, I think you can be comfortable knowing that he's doing what he's supposed to do. Remember Paul T. Podesta, when he talked about analytics way back in the beginning of this year, before they even hired Andrew Barry, they talked about how they, and even Kevin Stefanski mentioned, it's, it's about taking in all the information that you have and looking at what they're doing on fourth down. It's clear that they're doing that. Now, you know, executing it's another story, but they clearly understand what, what's in their favor and, and what they probably should be doing. As an aside, is, are people still stunned by how dumb the analytics conversations on national football broadcasts are sometimes? They are so stupid. And if any of those national people who were like, why is there science and math in football? Want to come on? Got to watch the tape. You're always invited because you're a chucklehead. Please get off the TV. Let's get got to watch the tape on the NBC Sunday night broadcast or whatever we got to do because it's an embarrassment. Ooh, I wasn't good at. I hate it. By the way, uh, I think a good offseason game on Gotta Watch the Tape would be 
would you take this former Browns coach or a robot who would have been a better coach of the Browns, like Rob Chudzinski or a robot who you got? So we can play that game in the offseason. We'll write that down. One of the things that it feels like to me, Ellis, and part of this, and it's why I was so intrigued by the seven possession game and how it worked out against the Giants. And again, part of that, it's the Giants and it's easier to do an eight minute drive, whatever. But you know, if you're if it's fourth and four against Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen or Derrick Henry in the playoffs, right? And you're the Browns, you want to lean towards, well, let's try to keep the ball because I don't want to punt it away to Patrick Mahomes and then be like, okay, well, like we might have been able to make that fourth down. And then we punted it to him and they went 90 yards in a minute 38. That to me feels like maybe you do you, Ellis, do you push it against a better offense in a big game? Do you push it even more? on fourth down, believe in your guys, believe in the numbers, go for it and keep the ball. So you don't let Josh Allen get out there and run around and make huge plays. Yeah. Like, like as we started this podcast saying it's a, it's a possession in a numbers game and you need six instead of three, especially in the playoffs against those high octane offenses. What I think is so interesting about Stefanski's approach just in that giants game, it'll be interesting to see what he does against the jets is he's starting to condition his players to be comfortable in fourth down, to not worry or tighten up because it's fourth down, because we're getting so used to going for this. And when you become comfortable on fourth down, you become even more smooth on third down. I think about the uh, fourth and four touchdown to against the Ravens uh, to Richard Higgins on that play before that, I think it was third and eight and Baker just scrambled. There was a pass play called nothing going. Baker scrambled right and picked up four yards and that's a dumb play if you plan on not going for it. Okay, fine. You made your field goal a little shorter, but what's the real difference there? But because you knew you were going for it already, like you said, dumb teams called timeouts on fourth down because they don't have their decision made yet. That decision to go for it on fourth down was already made on that third down call. Baker, get some yards because we're just going to make fourth down that much easier. So in the way you call a game, game, of course, game to game, and they talk about their singular focus, but there's something about conditioning your team to be ready for those high stake, high pressure moments. And this Browns team, though the success isn't there yet on fourth down, we could probably argue they're playing looser and more freely on third down, knowing that they still have fourth down to convert. Like the, the really when that uh, story on that state championship, Arkansas coach came out, that was really the premise of it that, you know, fourth down is actually third down and it's not our players just aren't as pressured. And I think that now is trickling up to the NFL and we're seeing this Browns team make really smart decisions on third down that because they know they have fourth down in their back pocket if they need to get there. That is, that is exact. That's the exact point of this, that it's all connected. It's not, are you deciding on fourth down to go on fourth down? It's that you have a plan and you know what you're, principles are and it affects you on first down second down third down it affects you the whole game which is how you can tell if you're doing it right or not in my as yet unwritten football novel there is a halftime scene where the oh my god is- what's the title of this novel we need to come up with that on this podcast at some point <laughs> but go ahead <laughs> i mean i have it it's it's all here it's all in my brain i just got to get it i'm too busy writing and uh, doing podcasts to write this thing down the halftime scene of the championship game, the coach is his team is trailing. He's trying to inspire the team and he's talking about how they're going to be aggressive in the second half. And so he takes out a hammer and he breaks the punter's leg at halftime. And he's like, we can't punt. The punter has a broken leg. There's not even an option anymore. It's very inspiring. So I'm not saying that Kevin Stefanski should ba- break 
the Scottish hammer's leg, but it's like the perception of breaking the punter's leg. Pretend his leg is broken. When you play Patrick Mahomes, pretend your punter's leg is broken because unless it's fourth and 40, like we're going for it, baby, because that's the way we're going to win. So we can yeah, I think yeah. I was say, I think one of the things that analytics doesn't measure is the mental side of it. And like what Ellis was getting at there, knowing on third down that you're going for it on fourth down, I think matters, you know, because there are people who are going to be a little tighter in those situations. And that's not something that's it's easily measured by, by data like that. The other thing that's keep in mind is we are talking about the Browns here and the defense obviously is the weak link on this team. And yeah, they want to keep them off the field as much as possible. So going forward on fourth down, you know, accomplishes more than just keeping your drive alive. It keeps your defense uh, away from bad things happening. No, I was just going to say, Doug, I love the, the halftime scene in your future novel. I can already see it being adapted <laughs> to the screen and that scene would be powerful, but I worry that we're giving Browns fans a, a, uh, Tanya Harding uh, plan here where something yeah. shaped might happen in first energy stadium and, or in a road playoff game in, in Arrowhead. And uh, just don't get any w- weird ideas, Brown fan. That's not what Doug's implying here, but I, I, it, it, visually it makes sense. And on, on the Netflix series, I could see it. I, I, you, nobody else can break the punter's leg. Only the coach of the team is allowed to break his own punter's leg. So um, that's where we are. Listen, that's really interesting. I love the decision-making process. And that one thing that's easy for Browns fans to love about this is the Browns are smart about it because it's one of those things. It's not always about whether you agree or disagree with someone's decision in life. It's about, do you respect their process? Do they have a process? And if somebody has a process, you've got to tip your cap sometimes, even if you disagree with maybe, well, I wouldn't have made that decision. At least they're thinking it through. And I think Scott, what you have laid out here is there is no doubt the Browns are thinking it through. And I think what might they might be headed for is they're going to, it's going to even out a little bit. They might start making, they might make their next seven fourth downs because they've had, I think some good play calls and some right ideas that haven't worked out so far, but they're not doing it from desperation. And really that's the most important thing I think in this whole thing. All right. Ellis Williams is going to be next talking about red zone efficiency. Also very good lately, very good lately, good all year. Very good lately. We'll give you those numbers. Talk about what's going on next on gotta watch the tape. Doug Maurice Ellis Williams, Scott Pats go back. We're in the orange and brown talk feed. Of course you're subscribed. Of course you are because we just have so many podcasts. You don't want to miss them. Sunday, Browns Jets and the season Brown Steelers. If you're not in now, just like this downtime, you know, say the family's gathered around the tree and everybody's celebrating and basking in the glow of the holiday season. Just pop in your earbuds. Listen to God to watch the tape. You don't have to deal with your family, right? I mean, you know, the kids are driving you nuts, whatever, just, Give a little listen. We're, we're better than Christmas carols. Or if you're a kid and your parents are driving you nuts. I mean, they, I'm not saying the kids only drive the parents nuts. We know I'm a parent. My kids are sick of me. I would recommend to them earbuds. Got to watch the tape. Let Scott and Ellis get you through the Christmas season. Ellis, red zone efficiency for the Cleveland Browns. Dive in on Got to Watch the Tape. Yeah, y'all, listen, on this on this podcast, we dive into uh, important topics. And it's this is red zone efficiency is something we've talked about before. But aside from really coaching and quarterback play, which are two things we touch on this podcast often, short yardage, like Scott just talked about, scoring touchdowns, especially in December and into January, is how you win games. So we're going to revisit the Browns' red zone efficiency on this deep dive. The last time we talked about the Browns' red zone successes, 
They were among the league's best through that first five-game window, the early part of the season. They sat around an 80% touchdown conversion clip. Uh, during the middle of the year, that number dropped. And as we said on this podcast, they, it dropped as expected. Remember, the top two red zone teams from 2019 converted at a 77 and a 67% uh, rate. So that was expected. And why that exactly happened, you can blame the bad weather, that November trilogy of crappy weather games or a few games without Nick Chubb and Wyatt Teller. Regardless, the Browns struggled leading up to their bye week in the red zone. Think Raiders game, only six points. That's not the team that Kevin Savanti's putting on the field anymore. Since then, it's been an offensive explosion in the red zone. That looks a lot more similar to how the year started. Listeners of this podcast know I'm a firm believer in three-game data trends. I think that paints the most accurate picture of a team's current state of play. So over the past three games, the Browns are scoring touchdowns in the red area at a 92% clip. Surprisingly, that's only third best over that stretch because the Packers and, for some reason, the Denver Broncos are both have both converted 100% of the red zone tries over the past three weeks. Don't some reason Drew Locke. Don't some reason Drew Locke. Don't throw shade at Drew Locke. He's doing his best. His mom's on Twitter defending him. Just let let Drew Locke live, man. Yeah, he, he only throws interceptions in the middle of the field, but the red zone <laughs> on fire. <laughs> All right, but – so over these past three games, this has helped the Browns raise their season average back up to 75%, closer to that early season starting point, which over the year, as Scott mentioned, puts them fourth best in the league behind teams that have, you know, championship game and Super Bowl aspirations in the Seattle Seahawks, Tennessee Titans, and Green Bay Packers. So how are they doing this? Unsurprisingly, it's a lot of what they do best. Diverse personnel packages, pre-snap motion, play action, and a precise pinpoint Baker Mayfield during the football. Before I get into several specific data points, I want to ask you two to speak for Browns fans and answer this question. What is it like watching a Browns football team score touchdowns rather than kick field goals all season long? Well, they were really good in the red zone in 2018 when Freddie Kitchens took over. I don't know, you know, we, we tend to forget about that, but that was one of the revelations of Freddie Kitchens, the play caller uh, at the end of that season. Uh, but yeah, it is, it's good to see, and they, they've been creative. I think you, you've seen a lot of different things in the red zone and especially near the goal line. And now as we all know the running has been an issue, but uh, you know, from the first play action uh, touchdown pass to Njoku in week one, where he was, you know, so wide open, it was, it was like, all right, Stefanski understands how to use his tight ends and how to use play action. And we just saw it twice on this. You know, we saw both those things on this one play and it, it was a touchdown in the red zone. So, um, you know, it's, it's been good from the start and it's continued that way. I mean, if they had been better in the red zone in 2019, it would have changed the whole season. I mean, how infamous that Rams game, right? What were they, 0 for 6 in the red zone on that one drive in a game they lost by a touchdown? I mean, if they could have scored in the red zone and it did conjure up a little bit, I mean, against the Giants, the Browns averaged seven points per red zone trip and the Giants with Freddie Kitchens calling the play averaged one point per red zone trip. And it's like, that's where it's at. And it just is remarkable of when it looks difficult in the red zone. I mean, there were times last year where it was like, I don't know how anybody scores touchdowns. Oh my God, the defense gets compressed. You run routes, nobody's open. Oh my God, how do you score? How do you, that's what it felt like. And now it's like, oh yeah, you score. So I and mean, else, it's remarkable. I'd say, and also, why do they keep throwing it to Demetrius Harris? What about Odell? What about Jarvis? You know, that, that was a whole 
storyline last season in the red zone. It was, it was a big mess. They did hit. I think they, did they miss on Was it a throw to Njoku in one of the recent games in the end zone? They threw a Demetrius Harris route to David Njoku in the end zone. And I almost puked. I was like, I had a flashback, man. I was like, oh, that's not the red zone play we want to see. And I get it. Tall athletic tight end, go up and get it. But that was like, that was all they had. And it was like, why don't you go to the good players? It's like, they couldn't stop going to Demetrius Harris. That's my number one. If I conjure up a still shot of the 2019 football season, it's Demetrius Harris attempting to catch a touchdown pass in the back of the end zone and failing to do so. And then toe tapping next to the field goal post. Yeah. 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 That's it's like, is this at, like Baker might throw it through the goalposts or maybe Demetrius Harris will catch it, but probably not. And they have $75 million worth of worth of talent at the skill positions. <laughs> and the only play they have in the red zone is throw it to Demetrius Harris. Thank you, Ellis. I need to re- recuse myself from the rest of this podcast. Will I get my bearings? But yeah. that, but the whole point is it feels 180 degrees from that. Right. To put a bow on 2019, they were lower half of the league at a 58% touchdown conversion. You know, so to, to increase that by literally 20%, we're seeing the difference, the, the performance above uh, replacement above Freddie Kitchens, if you will. Um, and on that play that you're talking about to Njoku, they actually scored on the next play. So despite one questionable decision, this team gets itself in the right sets and then eventually converts. So, Let's run down a few things that are really the, the premise in, of setting up successful red zone plays and unpack how the Browns are doing this. Um, first, we're going to look at how they're able to get into different personnel sets and then what that means for the offense when the play starts, meaning play action, ball distri- distribution, and just how these plays are executed. So, just big picture Baker Mayfield in the red zone this season, 20 touchdowns, zero interceptions. I know there's a lot more football that goes on that decides Baker's QBR and PFF grades. And I know those have been going around Twitter that, you know, his QBR is top five in the league. His PFF grade is only behind like Mahomes and Rogers right now. But Again, I know I got data to get into, but you guys, if I were to tell you Baker was 20 touchdowns and zero interceptions in the red zone, it's it's really remarkable, both a testament to how he's playing and the coaching of Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt. I mean, this is as good as it gets, right? And it's also a reminder that Antonio Callaway is no longer on the roster. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Okay, so first let's get into – play count so over these past three games the browns have run 42 total red zone plays and to no one's surprise it's a basically an even 50 50 split kevin Stefanski showed us his hand the day he came and took this job saying he wanted to be a healthy 50 50 team marry the run in the pass the browns have run 22 pass plays in the red zone 20 run plays total 42 and that again keeps defenses off balance you just don't know what's coming and when it is coming. The biggest thing that I think it's two things and it, it's a complete, again, they're connected to each other in every essence, but the way the main reason the Browns are so efficient in the red zone, in my opinion, is the way they use motion play action and a diverse group of personnel packages. So let's start with, with motion of those 42 plays, and this ties into uh, what we talked about last week, 
Uh, so again, no surprise here, but it's just, it's nice to see the data check out with what a coach tells both his team and the media when he's talking about how he builds this offense of the 42 plays, the Browns have used motion 24 times. We talked last week against the Ravens. How was Baker Mayfield so successful motion on 50% of these plays gives Baker Mayfield pre-snap information that he definitely wasn't getting last year and that a lot of these quarterbacks around the league don't get teams like the Steelers, you know, aren't using a lot of motion, but it's really a testament to how Kevin Stefanski both has trained these guys and just the understanding of if I can get the information, I may as well take it. So the motion is putting both the receivers and running backs in positions Kevin Stefanski wants them in and then giving Baker Mayfield that information to act on. In play action, they've only used play action five of the 22 pass plays. But what's interesting about that is Baker Mayfield has thrown five touchdowns over those of those 42 plays. The Browns have 11 total red zone touchdowns, again, a 50-50 split. 11 total touchdowns over these past three games in the red zone. Five of them have come via the pass and the play action has accounted for four of those five. So even though they're not using play action, you know, at the, a number you would think they it would be at a higher number when they're passing, it's no coincidence that four of the five times they've scored passing touchdowns has been play action. It's what this team has been and it's what is producing results. As for the rushing, the, uh, the rushing plays have come with uh, three motions, six total, so half motion on the rushes, six total touchdowns, and the distribution of those rushing touchdowns, four from Nick Chubb, one from Kareem Hunt, and then two from Baker Mayfield. So that's what's impressing me here is Baker Mayfield, and the, the one that stands out is um, Baker uh, – making the decision in the Baltimore game to take off. We, we talked about that, how the high ball to David Njoku, not the best play, but then Baker takes off. So this is a point where I want to ask you guys, a lot of that makes sense of what I've laid out. 50-50 pass, 50% motion, play action equals throwing touchdowns. But what do you guys make of Baker Mayfield's decision-making with his feet? It's as of late, he really has become a player who's deciding to take off at real opportune times. And it is really proving to be advantageous for this offense. On one of my midseason young quarterback rankings pieces, I was, I talked about the rushing yards of the quarterbacks and whether they're called runs or scrambles, but obviously we all know it's, but especially in the red zone, you know, you wind up in a play where Josh Allen's rolling out and then he decides to run or Lamar Jackson's rolling out and he decides to run or, and, and Russell Wilson, how dangerous that can be. And I just felt like that's not Baker. Like you have to, okay, you have to do something else. You have to be efficient with your play design or you have to do something else. Cause you don't have that. That's just not who he is. And you can't force something that's not there. He's not, he's not of a, as much of a gifted runner as Josh Allen. So what are you going to do? But Stefanski mentioned it on – he had a third down conversion in the last game with his feet. That red zone run against Baltimore was like – I got googly-eyed about that because he does – that has come back in the last month a little more. And, A, when he does do it – I mean, 
it picks up a huge conversion and B, it plants a seed a little bit. If you're at least a moderate threat there, then I think, okay, now you get out there. Now a defender, a linebacker who's caught in between. Now maybe he comes up. Now it opens up a throw. Like I just thought that was dead. You know, there's, there's like 60 or 70% of the best quarterbacks in the league. They've got that. And Baker was in the, what, the one third that doesn't have it. He just mm-hmm. doesn't. But it has come around a little bit. Scott, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to make too much of it, but man, it's a little bit of a difference maker when you're trying to convert this stuff. I think between the slide on Richard Higgins' touchdown celebration and that catch Baker made, he's clearly the most athletic player on this team, and they need to be running him more. (laughs) I I think, you know, he's not a running quarterback, but I think he's in this really good sweet spot between a quarterback like Tom Brady and, and, and your running quarterbacks. He clearly has the ability to pick up yards with his feet and he's shown he can do that. Um, but yeah, it all comes down to doing it at the right time. And he's made some big runs uh, recently. So, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to scheme up a lot of plays for him to keep the ball and draw it on purpose. Although I'm waiting for that play where everybody's wide uh, kind of the Joe Burrow special. And then he just takes off up the middle. Um, Cause he can do that. But yeah, I think mean, like Baker is defenses can't just sleep on that. He, he can clearly pick up yards with his feet. And, you know, that's something I'm sure the Browns realize. And maybe we'll see more of that. But the only way he's going to be effective at that is if he's decisive. If he sees it and goes. If he hesitates, he's not fast enough or wiggly enough to kind of be meandering around out there and then be like, okay, now I guess I'll go and drop a spin move on a guy or truck a dude. He's got to see it and decide and go. And now, again, it's one of those things. He gets more comfortable, more confident, and now it works. But yes, Ellis, I think I think it's a great point. Right, because in quick stat correction here on Gotta Watch the Tape, Doug did it for me, but it's one rushing touchdown for Baker Mayfield, four Chubb, one Baker, one Hunt, that equals six. I had the first down conversion mark there, but equally important. And that's what we're seeing as the difference, I think, in a large difference in the red zone outside of the, the motion and play action. It's exactly it, Doug. It's Baker's decisiveness because he isn't the athlete that can – make up for a lack of indecision with athleticism, but whether it's releasing the ball quickly or taking off with his feet, he is processing so much more quickly in the pocket now than he was just even eight games ago. And that is again, a testament to Alex and Pelt and Kevin Stefanski, both getting in his ear, coaching him up, but then Baker acting on it. Can I, so, can I add one thing real quick and tell me if I'm wrong on this? But it's one of these things, my daughter and I, when I watch the games with my daughter, I, I freeze things and I make her look at things. And like, she really likes football, but sometimes she doesn't want to rewatch film. She doesn't want to be on Gotta Watch the Tape. Right. She just wants to live a normal teenage existence. Dad, life is not a podcast. If I hear that once, I hear it a hundred times in a week. But I always freeze it and I say, watch Baker step up in the pocket, not bail. When the pressure comes, not bail, step up. And when he steps up, he gives himself the chance to run and the chance to make plays because that's going to be a lot of times. Now he did get in the end zone going wide. Right. But sometimes back in the, you know, last year when he's bailing out to the right, every time there's pressure, what's he going to do? He's going to get out there on the edge while he's backpedaling and do a somersault and do a backflip and get around somebody. You're dead. If he feels pressure stays in the pocket and then moves up, and now you can be chance. You have a chance to be decisive and go and do something. So I think it feels like to me a little bit of his pocket awareness makes it more possible for him to take advantage of situations to run because he's not bailing. He's moving with a purpose. 
Yeah, I Doug, I completely agree. And that, and and even with, the, if I'm remembering right, that Ravens rushing touchdown we're talking about, he stepped up and went between right guard and right tackle. So it wasn't you know a complete bailout fading to the right trying to find something. It still was a step up with purpose and then make a decisive decision. And I I think those plays are those are the difference makers. It's going to be the difference maker when Pittsburgh comes to Cleveland. It's going to be a difference maker in the playoffs because it's the one play defenses can't account for. And even though, Scott, you're right, teams are going to need to start respecting it, that's so much easier said than done. When you see Baker Mayfield back there and it is third or fourth down, you're worried about Jarvis. You're worried about Kareem Hunt. You're worried about one of these three tight ends, which we're going to get to because of how effective they are when these three tight ends are on the field. You're not worried about Baker taking off. And if you are, it's fourth on that list, and it kills you. It's a backbreaker. I actually had the Easter egg today for Football Insiders, and I thought – one of, if not the most important play of the game in that Giants game, was uh, the second 95-play drive they had, Baker's, I think, like third and seven, third and five uh, scrambling conversion. It's just, it, you know, the Giants run great man defense. Nobody's open. All 22 will show you. Nobody's open. And Baker takes off, and he makes it by a half a yard or so. But that keeps the chains moving. It's, it's the yardage that defenses can't account for. And especially how much we've talked about he's so good against zone. Why don't you play man against him? If you play man and now the quarterback runs when you play man and turn your back, now mm-hmm. now you're a little bit more scared to play man. But if you play zone, he's hitting windows. So, I mean, like that's – it's the whole push and pull. When Baker does this stuff, he gives Stefanski even more options and defenses fewer options. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. So, two more things I want to get into. First, who's scoring these touchdowns, and then we'll get into personnel packages – Again, a lot of Baker Mayfield. He's the quarterback, and he's been money in the red zone. He has five passing touchdowns, one rushing. As for the receiving, two to Jarvis Landry, and both of Jarvis's touchdowns have been just money-making scores. One came against Tennessee, back of the end zone, go in motion, just chop up the corner with a filthy route and win. And then the one Sunday night, he gets a taunting penalty for whatever, but that's tough man coverage and he just beats his guy across the middle and scores on a pinpoint throw from Baker, one where he was bailing right. Do we want to spend a second here just to talk about Baker and Jarvis's chemistry in the red zone? Or have we, have we, have we tapped into that enough? I mean, it is he for being a – we probably would consider a, a – I don't want to call him undersized, but just a smaller receiver stature-wise. It's impressive how much Jarvis Landry wins in the red zone. He's very physical for his size. Um I think the one against Tennessee was that that was like the low throw. If I'm remembering the corner. Yep. You're right. In the corner. And like there was that was, he wasn't the first read, I believe. Yep. And I think Baker even might've had somebody in the flat, but I think he's so conditioned to, all right, this ain't working. Where's Jarvis? Cause he, he knows be. that the odds are pretty good that, you know, even if Jarvis is tightly covered, he's going to get his hands on it and, and potentially catch it. Yep. They have a connection. They don't need much space to connect, and that's really helpful in the red zone. That's exactly it. And then the rest of these guys, um, will, for receiving touchdowns, one to Hooper, one to Higgins, one to Kendall Lamb. Again, Kevin Stefanski getting his tackle open in the end zone compared to Mike Vrabel trying to get a tackle open at the 50-yard line. Big moment in that game. And then here's a one interesting part, and I wanted to, to see what you guys think about this. Nick Chubb, four rushing touchdowns of the of the total and then cream hunt just one 
we say cream hunt in short yardage. And I think this really ties to Scott's first deep dive where a lot of these Nick Chubb runs came from one of them's 14 yards out. I remember another one was seven yards out. Nick Chubb can beat you from distance in the red zone. Cream hunts touchdown, I think was two or three yards. That's what this team is. And if they're getting Nick Chubb touchdowns from 14 yards out, I mean, that's, that's, that's the best this offense can be. And that's what I think will be interesting going forward is if you can keep that Nick Chubb production, because for whatever reason, as we just spent the first half of this podcast talking about, they're not a short yardage running team, but still for Nick Chubb to have four red zone rushing touchdowns, I think spoke volumes about the back that Nick Chubb is. I mean, Scott, what you did, I think I like the chances of Nick Chubb scoring on first and goal from the nine more than I do Nick Chubb first and goal from the two. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just, yeah, give him more room to run. And, you know, people are going to be more spread out. You're, you're, the people on the outside uh, have more things to think about. They got more room to cover. And I haven't, I don't know where, if anybody charts this stat, I'd be interested to know how much we think of, like we've talked about Kareem Hunt being good in short yards and he, he's someone who fights through, you know, tackles and not that Nick Chubb doesn't break tackles, but we just see Kareem Hunt as this physical, more, more physical runner who's picking up those tough yards. I, I wonder how much of his avoided tackles, his, his broken tackles are happening on the outside compared to inside. Um, because, you know, again, overall, the Browns just are not great running uh, on short yardage. And a lot of that is up the middle. Um or at least within within the box area. So, um, yeah, I, I, don't know, I think I forget what the original question was at this point, but I think um, I do like Nick Chubb running when it's, you know, from the 10-yard line as opposed to from the two or three, definitely. It, it does feel like, right, so if they're best when they run wide, right, and you, you wait for Nick Chubb to hit that cutback lane, when you're yeah. tight in the red zone, when it's from the two-yard line, you have safeties and linebackers attacking that wide run because they're not worried about back coverage. And there's sometimes there's more guys knifing through than you can block or like you miss one block and you're dead because you're running. What- and so that's what they do best. But then when they are running inside with Hunt, like they're just not quite as good at that. So I'm getting, I think they'll come around on that. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting that just where they are, how your two pieces here are connected. Ellis has talked about how good they are in the red zone, but yet it's not because they're good at short yardage. It's good because they're efficient in medium yardage inside the 20. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then it, it has so much to do with where Kevin Stefanski is putting his players on the field in terms of personnel. So in this personnel breakdown, I hope this follows well in a, an audio form. I'm going to write about this eventually too. The Browns have used six different personnel packages over these past three games. It's their, it's, I mean, there's only so many personal p- packages you can get to. So that is almost as di- basically as diverse as it gets. They average three different personnel packages per red zone trip. So I know you listeners can't see it in front of me, but as I was charting these, I would have, I would not notice the purse first. So let's say first down 21 personnel, second down 11 personnel, third down 12 personnel. If it's a five play red zone trip, they might do 11 twice or 21 twice, but they're using three different personnel sets that puts so much stress on a defense, not just in the terms of there's different players out there, but you are depending on what type of defense you are. You're either 
bringing in your own different personnel to match it because, okay, now they go from 11 to 22, which is, you know, a more of a softer look, three wide receivers in 11 compared to a more heavier look, two tight end, two running backs in 22. Do the defenses match the offense and switch their personnel? That gets confusing. Now you have new players on the field. Now you need to get the calls to these new players, bigger linemen taking, I mean, all these minor things that you don't think, you know, you don't see in a, on a Madden simulation on a football field. If you have to run out an extra defensive lineman, you know, they don't move the fastest getting out there. Now are you taking a timeout? Is the play clock getting low? Are your defensive players getting these calls in? Or as a defense, do you just stay in your base set as Kevin Stefanski's offense is changing personnel? That's what makes this so difficult. So that's one, that is really what I found most fascinating about this study. If there's one thing you as you listeners take away from this, it's that Kevin Stefanski averages over these past three games, three different personnel groupings per red zone trip. And it's really an average of five or six plays. So you are never getting the same look twice with this offense. You're probably getting the same play once or two twice, but you're never getting the same look. I think everybody like the red zone, your red zone offense is a microcosm of your whole offense. Just like, I mean, it's, it, it tells you a lot about your philosophy. It feels like what you're talking about Ellis is a thing. I think we've all seen and we've seen grow with the Stefanski offense. And it's the biggest difference from last year is the cohesion to everything that there is a cohesion within the variety. And the thing in the red zone, as you mentioned before, they throw the pass to David and Joku. It's incomplete. They score on the Baker run on the next play in the red zone. You don't have to score three times. You can have a failed play or two and it's fine. Just don't turn it over while you're doing it, but you can misfire. But I do feel like when they run a play in the end, in the red zone that doesn't get in the end zone, it still has value because it's part of a cohesive idea that's setting up the next play. And just like remembering that Rams series, whatever, six red zone failures last year, it felt more like, okay, everybody go in their route. Oh, we missed it. Okay. Come back. Everybody go out in their route. Oh, we missed it. Try again. And it didn't feel like it was building off of anything, right? They were just individual plays. And that's what we've talked about. Some of the, Early in the game, if they're running the ball and it's not working, there still feels like there's a point to it because it's either setting up play action or it's setting up the run game for later in the game. And that cohesion within the variety, Ellis, is why. That's why it's working for him in the red zone. Exactly. And, Scott, I, I, I think I'm right on this, but I, I, I want to hear what you think. think. We keep talking about that Rams game. That final possession, I don't remember the Browns switching personnel at all, right? I mean, it just was Odell, Jarvis, maybe Callaway at that point. I don't know, but you know what I mean? Like I don't remember anyone coming on and off the field who they had out there was who Freddie was going to try and score those, that game winning touchdown with. Yeah. Well, I think they, you know, you didn't have, you didn't have the depth you got on this team. Now you didn't have the options sure. that you have on this team. Now, um, you know, you didn't have three tight ends you could work around and, and do different things with certainly didn't have uh, um, well at that point uh, you didn't have the two running backs that you could do something with. So yeah, I mean, you're stuck with who you had and, you know, they just tried to make it work. Yeah, and I'll give I'll give that uh, regime the, the benefit of the doubt with not having Hunt back. But, you know, I, I got to Cleveland.com uh, week two of the, the regular season, and I learned quickly that it was becoming a thing that there was no fullback on that roster. So part of it is Hunt wasn't there, but the other part is, too, just roster building. They made the decision not to have that diverse of a, of a personnel grouping at their disposal, which yeah. is now, you know what I mean? Because like, now that's night and day to what, this team's able to do. So to wrap this up, 
the Browns' most common red zone personnel grouping, this might be surprising, is actually 11 with over the past three games. With They've done it 17 times, scored two touchdowns in it, and it's pretty consistent over the three games. They've used it six times versus the Titans, four times versus the Ravens, and seven times versus the Giants. I think that number is really interesting in terms of the Giants and Titans not fearing their DBs. So let's get more of those DBs on the field and be an 11 personnel. That's what I see when I uh, got that data. Uh, Their most successful personnel grouping actually is 32. And this is a little tricky because I counted the Kendall Lamb touchdown as 32 purse, even though it's an extra tackle. Because in that same game, um, they score again on the Titans, but it's three tight ends rather than Kendall Lamb. So I might be fudging it a little bit there, but they've point being they've run that heavy formation four times, twice against the Titans, twice against the Giants, none against Baltimore, which made me think, you know, you're, you fear more of Baltimore's big bodies, two touchdowns against the Titans, two touchdowns versus the Giants running that formation four times. They're four for four. They're hundred percent with three tight ends and two running backs on the field. Hmm. That, that, I mean, one of the one of the formations that came up when I was going through the fourth downs is uh, they didn't have they wouldn't have a an extra lineman come out, but they would move Conklin over to the left next to Wills, and they would have two tight ends on the other side. And for some reason, they kept running it to the right behind those two tight ends, and it just wouldn't work, you know. But uh, yeah, he's gotten creative with with that for sure, and um, you know, having more linemen on the field in those situations is going to make that team think they're going to run, and he's kind of worked on that and. You know, that's what leads to that pass to, to Lamb in that situation. Scott, I'm so glad you said that about them pulling their or motioning their to have two tackles on the left side and then running right. That's really what Stefanski does in these pressure situations. He he zigs when you expect him to zag. You jumbo set, like you just said, you think we're running, we're going to pass. Oh, we have both are both our biggest blockers over here on the left side. We're going to run left. No, we run right. And it's, it's, it's pay, paying massive dividends for this offense to be unpredictable. To tie these lat the, your two pieces together at the end here, and maybe this is unfair, maybe this is wrong, but to me it felt like at times last year before you know the first eight games they didn't have Hunt, but it's like hey we have Nick Chubb who's arguably the best running back in the NFL. I mean he's in the conversation, and it's like okay we have a really good running back. We're in the red zone. Give it to the good running back. Like that's what you that's what you do. That's like a thing. It makes sense. We're a good running team. He's good at running. We'll run with him. And it turns out like that's not what he does best. And at this point, if Scott Patsko, no offense, Scott Patsko, I'm not saying my point here is not like, my God, if Scott Patsko can figure it out, literally anyone could figure it out. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the people who are paid by the Browns professional football team to work on this stuff, they know they're not like, oh, well, I don't know. Nick Chubb should be better at this just to keep handing it to him. They realize that Nick Chubb may be running him from short yardage in the red zone, running him on short yardage in general, isn't the thing to do. So you have to get more creative. Whereas maybe last year, it just, I felt like at times like, well, run Chubb didn't work. Okay. Throw to Odell didn't work. And it's like, all right, well, we have good players. Why isn't this working? We have good players. It's not working in the red zone. And they know they're using the numbers to tell them not just what players they should use in the red zone, but like what formations, what types of plays. And again, it leads to the cohesion that, you know, they, they know their team, not, they know their team beyond, Hey, this guy seems like a good player. And so, um, man, it really is. I it feel so if the chiefs are, Hey, Tyree kill leads the AFC and expose in explosive pass plays 
And that's how the Chiefs kill you. When you think about the Chiefs, what do you think about? You think about Tyreek Hill running behind defenses, right? I, I absolutely, Ellis, to wrap this up, couldn't this be the calling card? It's like, man, you got to stop the Browns because they're going to go for it on fourth down. They're going to be efficient running it and throwing it. And once they get in the red zone, you're dead. Like you've got to stop them before they get there because they're going to convert. Exactly it. They can score points. They can do it in quick drives, like the end of the Baltimore game, four plays, 75 yards, or they can do it like they did in New York, 14 plays, 95 yards. They're balanced, unpredictable, and disciplined. And that is a recipe for success in playoff football. It is why I've really come to think now, if there's a team that could give the Chiefs a real fight, you got to put the Browns on that list. And that is not something I would have said three games ago. But you get new information, players develop, cohesion begins, and this is the Cleveland Browns that we are staring at as we enter now, possibly them winning the AFC North. It's just incredible how much this offense has grown. And again, balance, unpredictability, and discipline has got them there. All right. Yeah, if you last... talk... Go ahead, I was going to say, if you want to talk about a team that could potentially score with the Chiefs, that's where you put the Browns. Defensively, it, right. it scares the heck out of me. I, I don't know how they tra- they guard Travis Kelsey. I just I don't know if that's – nobody can do it this year, and I know the Browns definitely can't do it. Right. I mean, I think – isn't he leading the league in, in receiving yards this year? I mean, he's yeah. a tight end. That doesn't happen. So, yeah, that, that's, that's going to keep Joe Woods up at night if that matchup happens. Here's how you guard Travis Kelsey. You guard him with begging, and you say, Travis, you have a Super Bowl ring. You are from Cleveland. The people of Cleveland need you to drop a few passes. Can Have you drop a heart. It? If they reach the AFC Championship game, I will write, dear Travis Kelsey, please throw this game for Browns fans. Have it in your heart. You'll get another one, Travis. You will get more than one, and you already have one. Don't be – it's like the reverse LeBron. It's like everybody was like, LeBron, come, LeBron, come back. And save Cleveland's like, well, we're not asking Travis Kelsey to demand a trade to the Browns, although that would work too. But just while you're elsewhere, don't be the reason that your team beats the Browns, Travis. The, the secret double agent, it never fails. Brilliant. It's been the long con, <laughs> the long con. Travis is – it's like the departed. Travis is just like they – Hey, put him in the Chiefs organization. And he's like, when are you guys going to make the playoffs? Because I'm trying to like throw a game for you. But I accidentally helped us win the Super Bowl last year because you guys went six and ten. So what do you want me to do? And it's like, we're coming, Travis. We're coming. Um, after, after almost 90 minutes of data on Gotta Watch the Tape, the Browns' two ways of winning are an I, Tanya <laughs> plot point and the premise of the departed. There you go. That's how you win football games in the NFL. Oh, so we'll take, yeah, that's uh, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. We've reached that point of the season. All right. We'll skip the end stuff because we went long and we had some really good analysis in there. So this is our one for this week. Browns jets on Sunday Steelers next week. We'll be back with you more holiday stuff. We'll figure it out. We'll be with you at least once. Thanks to everybody. We really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Scott and Ellis for all their hard work on this stuff. It's making me smarter. I know it's making you guys who are listening smarter about the football team that you love. So on behalf of Ellis Williams and Scott Pasco, happy holidays, everybody. I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape. <laughs>